I'm Stephen Wright, and this is a Mail Plus true crime podcast, The Yorkshire Ripper, a detective's story. Episode 2. It was the summer of 1979, and ten women had already been murdered by the Yorkshire Ripper. There was enormous pressure on West Yorkshire police, and officers led by Assistant Chief Constable George Oldfield were desperate for a breakthrough. It was then that Mr Oldfield decided to go public with letters and a tape sent to police by a man claiming to be the killer. He would become known as Wearside Jack because of his accent. Mr Oldfield was convinced the letters and tape were genuine and his decision to put them in the public domain changed the course of the Ripper investigation. Chris Gregg, then a young detective on the case, was among many officers who had reservations about the credibility of Wearside Jack. I would imagine that, subconsciously at least, the detectives on the case, if they were looking at particular individuals or trying to eliminate individuals from inquiries, that if the suspect or potential suspect didn't have a Wearside accent, as, as it was later identified to be, that they would take less interest in that individual. I think that this is where the whole investigation started coming apart at the seams. Because even around this time, there was disquiet amongst the investigation team because we were aware that the letters were being viewed seriously uh, before the tape. And when the tape came in, that was re-emphasised. But on the investigation team, one of the things that was felt to be significant was that when one of the letters came in, and it was on the Huddersfield case, and one of the things that seemed odd, if they were from the killer, and this was at the time, not in hindsight, was if that letter was from the killer, why didn't the killer actually mention in that letter? If you don't believe me that I'm the killer, go across to Bradford, look under a sofa on a waist tip, and you will find the body of my latest victim that you've missed. Because Yvonne Pearson was killed and the body hadn't been discovered when the author of that letter sent it in. And it was just thought to be a curious situation that if they were from the real killer, why didn't the person mention, aha, I'm so clever, you haven't found the body of a murder victim yet. These were the kind of things we were throwing about at the time. So there was always worry that the emphasis being put on this could be wrong. And of course, it wasn't long after poor Josephine was murdered that there was another murder. Barbara Leach, aged 20, a university student who was killed in Bradford, September the 1st, 1979. I won't repeat the grisly details because frankly, every murder was very similar and it's just shocking to read the details of, of what happened to her, like the other victims. 
you were involved in the murder inquiry with Barbara, weren't you, as well, Chris? Yes, I was. And you can't imagine the resolve it gives you. It fires you up with the most incredible determination. And I know I'm not speaking for myself. My colleagues were exactly the same. We just knew the enormity of what we were dealing with. Somebody else had been killed. The killer was still out there. Another young woman had lost her life in the most appalling, degrading circumstances with the terror that she must have suffered at this individual's hands. So Barbara Leach, murder victim number 11. Was there like a corporate sense of guilt? You know, obviously people were working round the clock, weekends, not being with their families, you know, imagine missing birthdays and you know, other family events. Was there a sense of guilt that we haven't got him yet? There wasn't a sense of guilt. There was a sense of almost driven determination. It was, we're doing our job. This will be the one. We get him. It was, what are we missing? It was, have we interviewed him already? As detectives, we're just doing our work. And every door that we were knocking on literally was, this could be it. This could be the, the moment that we're going to be face to face with the killer. There was continuing publicity around the audio from the man who became known as Wearside Jack. Good Lord, you are no near catching me now than four years ago when I started. I imagine a lot of inquiries were taking place separate to the sort of individual murder inquiries into where that man came from. Up until the murder of uh, Josephine Whitaker, the alibi process for alibying suspects and those to be eliminated from the investigation was always done very traditionally on hard facts such as the murder dates of the previous victims. And those are the dates that the detectives and the teams worked to when questioning and alibying where where were you and what were you doing on this date and that date. And then that all, all had to be checked out. When the emphasis was suddenly switched onto the Geordie accent on, on the tape and the letters, the whole thing changed and suddenly alibi dates were coming in for the dates that the letters had been sent from Sunderland and the date that the tape had been sent and so on and so forth. So it felt at that point that the introduction of the letters and the tapes as a serious component in the investigation was now bringing in a factor that wasn't a precise factor on hardback murder dates, but it was bringing in the maybe factor. And I think at that point, this is where that emphasis started pulling the whole thing apart. One of the key lines of inquiry was to try and identify exactly where that accent came from. You know, obviously, layman would know it was a Geordie or Wearside accent, but a lot of work was done, if I remember rightly, into exactly where just to, to try and narrow it down. It was. The team brought in the best experts available to try and narrow that down. And, and they concluded that the accent was from the Castletown area of Sunderland. And so the emphasis in Sunderland was now, right, OK, let's try and find who the voice and the handwriting belongs to. And the belief then was if they can find the author of the handwriting and the voice on the tape, that would lead to the killer. And George Oldfield remained utterly convinced, didn't he, that this man was the killer. It was almost like a a public duel, wasn't it? I remember it very clearly from back then, the, the uh, TV appeal by George Oldfield. I'm left with the 
a picture of a man, middle-aged, uh, 35 to 45 perhaps, uh, an individual who has not previously come to the notice of the police, a man of uh, hitherto perfectly good character who could be pursuing a normal occupation uh, without giving rise to suspicion that he is mentally ill. It was like a duel. And when the publicity was launched around the tape and the voice and the handwriting, very quickly, what was an already overloaded system of information and index cards and cross-checking of, of, of every piece of information was just overwhelmed with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of calls coming in suggesting who may be the author of the handwriting and the voice. And of course, all this information had to be not just processed, but, but acted upon because the name of the killer could be in there. And so there, there was now a, a completely new element in the mix. Since the voice of the man who claims to be the Ripper was broadcast last night, specially set up switchboards in Leeds, Halifax and Sunderland have been flooded with calls. I asked the head of the Ripper squad, Detective Superintendent Dick Holland, whether any of the calls had proved particularly useful. Uh, it's too early to say that yet. We've had a magnificent response, which in fact went on until uh, after half past one. It was after half past one this morning when things began to quieten down. Then they built up again this morning when the handwritings hit the press. And uh, they, they will all be followed up, but we're having to grade them, process them. Obviously, you can't deal with everyone at the same time, and we're having to give them priorities. I think the team on the investigation thought, for the first time probably, are we on the right lines with this? And some internal doubt and creeping in around, oh, yeah, this, this is a big step to be connecting these, these two together. Are we on the right lines? And by that stage, if my memory serves me right, there was already an artist's impression of a suspect, you know, a man with a beard, wasn't there? There was an artist's impression of a man with a beard. It was one of dozens upon dozens. I mean, it was hard to understand what the suspect could possibly really look like because various photo fits and artist impressions were all in the mix. And there were some with moustaches, there were some with beards, there were some with long faces, some with bushy hair, some with straight hair. There were all sorts of various photo fits. And I think some of the photo fits resemble each other. And once the real killer is known, suddenly, ah, looks like photo fit number five. But up until that point again, it wasn't clear. We on the investigation team never had a thought of, hmm, this particular photo fit is, is what the person may look like. What we did have was some hard evidence that we were looking at. We knew that the killer had a gap in his teeth from some bite marks that had been left on certain victims. We knew that he had something like a, a size seven shoe. We knew that he was possibly going to be wearing boots with the right boot having wear on it and a certain pattern that had been left at more than one murder scene. We also knew he may have a beard because the beard was consistent. And then there were more parts to this as well that we knew that the, the companies that uh, the five pound note uh, that had been left with the murder victim, one of the murder victims in Manchester, uh, a brand new five pound note was from certain companies. And we knew one of these companies 
was Clark's over in Bradford. We knew all this. So these were important facts to us. And there are certainly confident things that you could build on to alibi somebody. Did anyone who provided information about suspects, whether they were a witness or a survivor, talk about the Ripper having a Wearside accent? No, they didn't. Uh, just the opposite. You know, the, the victims and the survivors talked about a Yorkshire accent. There wasn't one victim who talked about um, anyone with, with other than a, a northern Yorkshire accent. Do you remember he did speak to me? And uh, I always said, like, the man who spoke to me were a Yorkshire man. If he was the man who attacked me, he's a Yorkshire man. And that was a real red flag, I would have thought, or certainly should have been. Well, yes. Um, you know, you, you can look back at these things and always say, well, you know, why did this happen? Why did that happen? And when people are providing information, witnesses to anything, it, it can sometimes be a little bit off what actually happened. You know, people witnessing crimes or victims of crime can actually at times get things wrong and often do. And so it's, it's not always taken as read that what somebody is describing they've witnessed or has happened to them has happened to them in precisely the chronology or description it has. And I think that's what played into this, the thought that, well, someone has said this person had a Yorkshire accent. Well, maybe the person wasn't quite sure or maybe he didn't speak as much as what. Can't speak for the, for the individuals who made the decisions at the time to do what they did, but... I, I'm just looking back and, and trying to think the, the thought processes that went towards the decisions they made. Barbara Leach, as I said earlier, victim number 11 on September 1st, 1979. I'm looking at the timeline here now, Chris. The next victim, murder victim number 12, Marguerite Walls, aged 47. A civil servant murdered on August the 20th, 1980. She worked at the Department of Education and Science office near Leeds and had been working late when she was murdered, leaving her office to walk half a mile home, spotted by the Ripper uh, and attacked with a hammer. Uh, and I won't go into the details of what else she suffered. What just occurred to me here is it was nearly a year between Barbara Leach's murder and the murder of Marguerite Walls. And was there a feeling in the squad then that has the killer, because these obviously were the days before DNA, has the killer been caught over something else and not come into the system? Has he killed himself? Has he died? You know, was there a feeling that is there a reason why there was such a big gap and he hadn't struck for nearly a year? You do look at that, and, the, and there was that thought, certainly. Trying to understand and, and get an explanation about what could be happening here. And, of course, with, with Marguerite Walls, I mean, Marguerite Walls' case wasn't immediately identified as part of the series as well, because at times they, they weren't completely scientific in terms of establishing whether a particular murder or attack was part of the series. At times could be quite subjective, and... It was down to the individual senior investigating officers together with the senior commanders of the Ripper team to determine whether a crime was part of the series. We know in hindsight that some mistakes were made there. It wasn't long, was it, before he struck again? 
what turned out to be his last murder victim, Jacqueline Hill, aged 20, the 13th and final known victim of the Ripper, who was murdered on, as I say, November the 16th, 1980. Jacqueline was a third-year student at Leeds University studying English and had been at a seminar in the city centre when she caught a bus back home at about nine o'clock and uh, very sadly was murdered in the final 100 yards of her journey home. I remember that case because it, it had a lot of publicity. I mean, all the cases did, and obviously it's, it's the, 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 the death toll went up, so did the publicity, but even Margaret Thatcher took a, a close interest in that one as well. And I, and I think Jacqueline's mother, if I remember rightly, was very vocal. It was, and that's no disrespect to any of the other victims at all, but it was a particularly poignant case, wasn't it? It was, Steve, because Jacqueline, when she was walking home, it, it must have been absolutely freezing. It was November, it was cold, it would have been dark, and the last thing in her mind at that time would have been what was about to happen to her. And this individual, he just seemed to be going from depths of depravity downwards and cruelty and inhumanity. And also, he was attacking young women in areas of the, the cities and towns that you thought, what on earth is he doing that he can get away with this? I mean, when Jacqueline was attacked, it was near the Arndale Centre at Headingway. It was well lit. Where her body was found at Alma Road, this is just off one of the main air roads. And he was becoming more risk-taking. He was becoming more dangerous. He was becoming more extreme, probably more out of control in a way. And the feeling now was, when is he going to strike again? Because if we haven't found the killer with the latest evidence, the latest information that's come on on the murder investigation we're now faced with, what's going to happen next? And that was always the feeling. You know, this has gone on so long now. He hasn't been caught. And I think with the Geordie angle as well coming in at that point, there was a sense around the investigation at that time that the thing was now slipping out of control. I would imagine that the public interest that the Prime Minister of the time was taking the case would have would have raised the stakes even more. Mr Oldfield, in November 1980, was replaced, wasn't he? And that, I guess that was a sign of possible political pressure being put on West Yorkshire Police to get someone new in and get a new drive to catch this madman. Yes, it was. I mean, there was a lot of a lot of pressure from all directions. The force as a whole was creaking at the seams in terms of resourcing an investigation of this nature and the enormity of it. The running of it, the command of it, uh, the execution of it, it was all under scrutiny, under pressure. And at that time, you know, there, there was no good news anywhere with this. You know, the, the thing was creaking. You did work on that particular murder, didn't you, uh... Chris. 
I did. I was one of the detectives that was transferred across to Leeds from Bradford. I'd been working on Barbara Leach's investigation. It was just several weeks later that Peter Sutcliffe was arrested. Was that luck or was that good coppering? A combination of both, I would say, Stephen. He was in Sheffield and he had picked up a young lady um, in the red light district. He was in his car. Two officers saw his car and checked the number plates and came back stolen. And he was challenged by the officers. They arrested him in connection with the car, uh, took him to the police station, and because he'd been found in the circumstances he had in the red light area, they notified the Ripper team. Detective Inspector Desert Boyle, very unsung character in the whole Ripper story. Very fortunate was the DI that was on that evening. Des linked in with the, the officers in Sheffield and between them they went back to the scene and found that he'd discarded his hammer and other instruments nearby. He was brought over to West Yorkshire, interviewed and started confessing his crimes. There were obviously understandably officers at the highest level who related, despite a suspect having to have a presumption of innocence, that the language used at the time was, we're not looking for anyone else now. But very quickly, it became clear that this man had already been in the system. I mean, you were working then on the Jacqueline Hill case. How soon were you made aware, although you weren't a senior officer at that stage, that uh, this was a very strong arrest? And can you recall how you and your colleagues reacted to that? It was within hours. Once uh, he was back in West Yorkshire, it started percolating across the team that we've got him. He's in custody. And we were then in, involved in the events surrounding evidence gathering now to, to prove the case against him. But it was, it was a sense of, I think, enormous relief. Relief that, yes, this is now at the stage it is. But mixed with that as well was, what else has he done? How has he got away with this? Who is this person? What do we know about him? All these questions that everybody was thinking about, you know, and, and asking about on the streets, we as cops were thinking that too. So we were thinking the same things. But we didn't know detectives across the team we didn't know the background at this stage as to whether he'd been questioned before, whether he'd been in our system. We didn't know. The name Peter Sutcliffe meant absolutely nothing. It wasn't until some time later, some days later, that some more information started filtering out. That was January the 3rd, 1981, when he was arrested. Was there a celebration 
that night. Can you remember a celebration amongst the detectives down the pub or whatever, or were you too busy trying to unravel his past? No, there was certainly no celebration, to be honest, Stephen. It was a very, it was almost reflective. There was, there was a sense of, thank God he's caught, but more of who is this person? How has he got away with it so long? It was more about the, the background to this now. The guy has been caught, thank God. Yeah. Nobody else is going to be killed by this character. But it was more than reflecting backwards about what's been going on and what else could he have done. It was big news. It was enormous news. His first appearance, I think there was a big crowd when he first appeared in court. And uh, I think he was taken from a van, wasn't he, with a towel over his head. And there's a lot of barracking going on. Once again, the crowds had waited for hours, some through the night, to watch Peter Sutcliffe arrive in the green prison van. The emotions were running high, uh, weren't they? They were running really high, and what you've described is absolutely right. There was great relief, I think, all round. Incredibly strong feeling around uh, this character as to who he was, his background, his arrest. There was absolute venom being directed towards him because of the horror and the terror and what he'd been doing and committing. Uh, so yes, feelings were running extremely high. As the days passed, it became clear that he had been the monster who'd been hiding in plain sight. And frankly, you know, due to mismanagement or maybe the pure size of the investigation which is unprecedented to be fair to Mr Oldfield and the other officers overseeing it that he'd slipped through the net repeatedly that I mean he had been interviewed hadn't he been on a number of occasions and then you, you you see the number of opportunities there had been to arrest him to stop him in his tracks it is quite uh, it was shocking wasn't it for the force and has had repercussions every chain <laughs> the old, old adage, it's as strong as its weakest. All you can do as a senior detective is set your lines of inquiry going. The rest is down to us. It's a bit outside your control. You've got to manage the information and coordination. Yes, if that goes wrong, that's down to you. But it's other human frailties are in these mixes as well. Now, as the detective's going, my job is to make sure that if a senior detective has got the right line of inquiry and the person I'm knocking on the door of is going to be potentially the killer because the lines of inquiry are right, then I've got to do my job and I've got to be on it. I've got to know my facts. I've got to know the information the very best I can anyway. And I've got to rely on what's in my folder or my briefcase when I'm knocking on that door, that it's accurate and I've got all the information. And if I've got all that, then it's down to me. And there was... A breakdown, I believe, at both ends. I think there were instances where the detectives, and this is with hindsight, the detectives who knocked on the door of Peter Suckley, I believe, not on every occasion, but possibly one or two of those occasions, he should have been coming out in handcuffs. So this is down to human instincts with the detectives and it's also down to the senior cops making sure that they've given the cops going and knocking on the door the very best chance. I think everybody was doing their level best to sort this out. 
things went wrong, mistakes were made, the information overload was there. There's no excuses. People got it wrong. But there were honest mistakes that were made, I believe. And all the stuff that's ever been said about women weren't treated as importantly because they came from this section of society. That's nonsense. I saw it firsthand, the grit, the determination that was put into every single investigation that certainly I was on. So mistakes were made, massive mistakes. The force was rightly criticised and it was a stigma that remained with West Yorkshire Police for a long time and careers were broken, people left the force quickly, early retirements, there was all sorts happening. The overwhelming feeling from certainly those I worked alongside and the senior officers I witnessed, people were doing the best in a challenging, difficult situation. Nobody took a bad decision thinking it was a bad decision. They did it, I'm sure, in honest belief. Others at the time would have made different decisions. I know that, but it happened and there were some significant consequences of some of those decisions. Because it has to be made clear that when he was arrested, it became very evident that uh, he didn't have a Wearside accent. In fact, he had a high-pitched voice with a thick Bradford accent. So was there a sense of shame, do you think, in the force that this key line of inquiry, George Oldfield had been convinced that Wearside Jack was the Ripper, that it wasn't him? Was there a sense of shame? But no, there wasn't a sense of shame. But what there was, was the criticism that came into the force at that time. It was hard felt. You know, it was very, very, very hard felt by all. And I, as a, as a detective at that point, you know, I was on that inquiry and, and feeling I was giving it my all and giving it my best and, and doing everything that I possibly could with absolute care and diligence and, and drive and determination to, to do the best I could on these cases. You know, I was, it was the first time I'd ever worked on a merger investigation in this way. And this huge criticism pouring into the force. And I was thinking, hang on, we've done our best. You know, you know we, we've done everything we can here. We've done this, we've done that. But it crippled a lot of people in, in senior positions, clearly crippled them. He, he did tick a lot of boxes, didn't he, Chris? You know, he had the beard. He roughly matched the description of the suspect. He was a lorry driver who was travelling around. From memory, he was known to visit red light areas. And, of course, there's the other description, which you alluded to earlier, the chipped tooth and everything. There was issues around his alibis when he was previously interviewed. Yeah, of course, with the benefit of hindsight, but he was there, wasn't he? Well, let, let me put it this way. If George Oldfield or Jack Ridgway had been one of the detectives who was sat in front of Peter Sutcliffe on a couple of those occasions out of nine, when some of them perhaps didn't have the information, but you, you could argue that it should have come out in handcuffs on each one of those nine occasions. The detectives who went to interview him, none of them ever had the full set of information that was available in the incident room. It was just split up into different parts. They never had the full set. And I, I think, I wonder if George Oldfield or Jack Ridgway, if they'd have been one of those detectives, would have recognised who was in front of them. 
I suspect they would. Fast forward to May uh, 1981, uh, very quickly uh, in my experience, just four months after his arrest, he, he's jailed for life at the Old Bailey. So Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire River, is a mass murderer. The jury of six men and six women took nearly six hours to reach their verdict. Outside, the crowds who'd waited so long for a verdict were delighted. They unashamedly rejoiced at the news that Sutcliffe was to spend at least 30 years behind bars. But for West Yorkshire police, it's the end of a nightmare which began five years ago. The main argument there was whether he was mad or bad. Clearly, the court decided that uh, he was bad. His claims about voices in his head directing him to kill didn't persuade the court. Dr Hugo Milne, the first of three psychiatrists who will be giving evidence, has been in the witness box all day, explaining why he's convinced that Peter Sutcliffe is mad. What was your assessment of the case against him in terms of his mental state, Chris? I thought at the time, and I'm convinced to this day, that this individual is, is just a cold-hearted killer. Is he mad? Yeah. Nobody normal does what he does. I think everything that I saw and I'm aware of, it showed him to be a cowardly killer. He, he murdered just the most vulnerable women, attacking them from behind when they hadn't got a chance to defend themselves. He's a brutal, evil individual who should be not one shred of sympathy in his direction. It's evident that he had a, a psychopathic control over himself. He was cunning, wasn't he, as well as being very lucky he could commit the most horrendous murders uh, imaginable and then presumably go home to his wife Sonia and act normally and not raise any suspicion amongst colleagues even. I mean, he butchered these women and he clearly enjoyed doing it. I think he did enjoy it and uh, he was cunning. He did have enormous luck on nine occasions, as you know, we've talked about, Stephen. He had enormous luck. The cops were in his front room and they left him in his front room. He shouldn't have been allowed that amount of luck. But yes, he did have cunning, but he was a cowardly killer, as we know. And the cruelty and the inhumanity that he displayed towards his victims was wicked beyond belief. Can I ask you this? We've spoken about the appalling mistakes in the case. A very different era in policing, as we know, because of computers and the home's computer system for managing a big murder inquiry, making sure there's more coordinated government in police inquiries which span police boundaries. Could a modern-day Yorkshire Ripper get away with it for so long? It's an interesting question. I would like to think not, and I think if Peter Sutcliffe had he been operating today, um, I think he would have been caught very, very quickly because of the advances, as we all know, in, in science and all the technology that we have now. What I wouldn't say impossible, because linking murders together is not always the precise science that people perhaps think it is. It can be very subjective. And um, it's always the case that a cunning murderer with luck could be able to commit a crime that wasn't immediately connected. And it's the connection of crimes that we still have difficulty with. It's not precise. It's not impossible this could happen, but I feel that if there was a series of murders, a killer would be caught much more quickly. But 
uh, could it happen again? Possibly. Next time on The Yorkshire Ripper, a detective story. Who is the person who sent the tape? Why haven't we caught him? Whether the hoax is a large Sutcliffe to kill, no one will ever know. I'm Jack. I say you are still having no luck catching me. I have I a great have respect for you, George. Good Lord. And when Val Tomlinson found that in the lab, filed where it shouldn't be, she blew the dust off, and in there was a seal of that envelope. Humble told the police who arrested him last year that he sent the letters and tape to the Ripper inquiry because he was bored. You've been listening to a Mail Plus true crime podcast with me, Stephen Wright. <laughs>